If you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 1. I want you to know I was going to start off with the I just flew in from Houston and boy, my arms are tired joke, but I, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I was like in my head, I was prepared to say that. And I was going to say, my arms are tired from carrying this bottle of water, but I just couldn't even get it out. So I I apologize. I'm not on my A game this morning because I'm clearly tired from flying in because usually a corny joke like that would be right in my wheelhouse. But maybe I'll warm up a little bit. Um, We've been talking uh, through this series about how to have a Merry Christmas. And we were talking about these four phrases in the same way that if you go to a foreign country that speaks a different language, you need to learn a little bit of that language to help you navigate through the culture. This time of Christmas, with all the things that go on, we believe these are a few phrases that can help you get through what can be a trying time for many people. The simple phrase of being able to say help and learning how to say thank you. That's enough. And this morning, we're going to learn one more phrase, which I think you guys should know already. It's very simple. It's You're welcome. So simple, but so life-changing. Let's pray. God, give us ears to hear what you have to say. Let us remember, amongst all the clutter and all the busyness and all the shopping and the cooking and and all the other things that wrap this holiday season, let us remember the simplicity of, of a scared little teenage girl and an overly faithful fiancé who are terrified of what you are doing through them for the Jewish people and for the rest of the world and saving all of us. Let us hear this good news and live it out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, I've told you before about this lady, so some of you might recognize her, but this is a lady named Mother Antonium. Now, before she was Mother Antonium, She was Mary Brenner Clark, a 44-year-old socialite living in Beverly Hills, California. She was twice divorced socialite, this pre-Paris Hilton, Beverly Hills woman, blonde socialite, living the dream. And something happens inside of her. Something inside of her is changing her. She starts to develop this, this heart for the poor and the hurting and the prisoners, The gospel is taking hold in her life and something happens as her children are all adults and moved out of the house. She has this longing to do something. And so she leaves Beverly Hills and moves down to Tijuana, Mexico and moves in and begins to be a part of the La Mesa prison, which houses 6,000 of Mexico's worst prisoners. And she was there since she was 44 years old. There every day helping the prisoners, making sure that they have food and nutrition and medicine and encouraging them to ask for forgiveness for those they've wronged. Well, in back a few years ago, 2008, on one morning she was not there, a riot breaks out at La Mesa prison in Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, someone who was there described the situation as bullets were flying everywhere. Prisoners had set fire. They had taken guards as prisoners. They had weapons, and the whole prison was surrounded by police. They were trying to stop the situation. And Mother Antonio shows back up and says, let me go in and talk to them. I say, you can't do that. And she resists their stopping her, and she makes her way in, and she calls out. And one of the prisoners there, 
who afterwards was asked why what took place took place, he said, as soon as we heard Mother Antonia's voice, we dropped our weapons out the window. And people go, why in the world would that happen? Why would this simple old lady stop a prison riot at La Mesa prison in Tijuana, Mexico with 6,000 of the worst criminals, the worst criminals of Mexico? Some have speculated the reason is for the past 30 years, at the end of the day, Mother Antonio does not leave La Mesa prison, but she goes to the cell at the end of the row and lives there. She's dwelt among them. Isn't that the heart of the Christmas story? I mean, the Christmas story is many things. For one, it's a scared teenage girl who finds out she's pregnant and her overly faithful fiancé who stays with her. It's a story of the powerful being undone by the underdog. It's the story of God being faithful to what he has promised to do for the Jewish people. And it's also the story of God working through the Jewish people to save the whole world. At the simplest form of it, it's a story of God moving in to our neighborhood and setting up shop at the end of our street and dwelling amongst us and moving in, in our neighborhood. Let's read from John. In John chapter 1, John opens his gospel saying this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. We skip down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The word took on flesh. Some of the ways that's been translated, another translation says, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. The word, it's not the Bible. That's not what John's talking about when he says the word of God. The word of God is God. And God moved in to our world. And so for all of the current discourse about keeping Christ in Christmas, we forget one thing. That in the beginning, Christ moved in to Christmas, no matter how many people tried to keep him out. Even if the ruler of the day created a genocide to kill all baby boys and keep Christ out, Christ was always making his way in, regardless of who was in control and what they preferred him to do or not do. The story of Christmas is about Christ, of God, taking on flesh, moving into our neighborhood. And I'm trying not to say that the present of Christmas is God's presence, but I can't think of a better way to say it. But that's the heart, really, of the Christmas story about God giving himself to be with us. And as much as, we know, as, much as I know that Christmas is about giving, as I get older, I don't like the way Christmas morning has evolved in my life. You see, when I was a kid, I would go downstairs and I would open presents and I would get things like remote control cars. And when you get a remote control car, you know how much work you put into that? Nothing. What you do, you take it out of the box, you turn on the remote control, you plug in the batteries and you drive it. When I was a kid, we lived in Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia. And so there was snow in the ground and I was so spoiled that we would put our remote control cars outside in the snow and we'd drive them around and when they would get stuck, you know who would go get them unstuck? 
Dad would do that. I wouldn't even do that. Now, I'm a grown man. You know what I get for Christmas? A weed eater. How much fun is that? There's no fun at all with getting a weed eater. One of the best presents I've got in the last, I think it was four years ago, I got a grill for Christmas, which is a great gift. I use it like every week. But you know what? It's work. You've got to clean it. You have to cook food on it. You don't get to play with a grill. You have to do work. And that's what happens when you get old. It is. Like that's the evolution of... You're bowing your, your head because you know that's happening to you one day. Enjoy it while you can. But that's the, the evolution of maturity, right? Like you go from being a receiver to a giver. You go from being a consumer to being a creator. You go from being a taker to a giver. That's the maturity of life. Uh, there was a, a psychologist named Carl Jung who talks about the two halves of life. And so you have the first half of life. In a lot of ways, you create the container that you live into. You create the container that establishes who you are and what gives you value and what makes you significant. One of the reasons that I flew back in from Houston this morning is because it's very important for me because of the opportunity that my daughters have, because of the family we're a part of, for them to have a Christmas experience in which you have tons of people in a room which gather around them and celebrate when they open a present, which they did nothing to earn, and they celebrate a tiny little stuffed animal, and everyone's happy about that. Because what happens in the first half of life is you get what some people call your narcissistic fill, where everyone gathers around you and celebrates you. Brene Brown talks about one of the most important things to determine how well someone can have a wholehearted life is the ability to believe that they are worthy of being loved. That's first half of life stuff. You establish the container that you fill your life with, and that's very important. But what happens when you never mature out of that? What happens when you never mature out of the first half of life? It's the problem that we have right now where we have boys who are old enough to shave and to go to war and to pay taxes and to buy beer, but they have not evolved from being takers and become givers. What happens when you are a grown person and you expect everyone to gather around you at Christmas and watch you open your weed eater? There's something weird about that because you haven't evolved into the second half of life. In the second half of life, you find out really how to fill the container. And ultimately, the way you do that is you, you lose. You lose the things that you think fill it up. The, the difference that I've seen, even from being a 24-year-old preacher when I first got out of grad school to being a 33-year-old preacher is I didn't have soul. When I first got out of school, I had education, I had degrees, I had books, but I didn't have soul. And you only get soul by struggle. When you think about soul music, where does soul music come from? It's not the suburbs. It's true. When you think about things that really matter, it comes from the struggle. One of the things I think is most important for me as a preacher that cha- that's different from when I started is I know what it's like to show up at church and need to, and I need to hear a word from God. That's something you get not in the first half of life, but the second half of life. They say that in the first half of life, you develop your ego. In the second half, you lose your ego. 
Because all spirituality is about letting go. All spirituality is about letting go. And I don't just say that because my daughters have frozen on an endless loop in my house. But because the process of letting go is ultimately the heart of the Christmas story. Right? If the Christmas story is about God dwelling among us, of God moving into the neighborhood, what does that mean? If you have someone who moves in at the end of your street and they move into the house down the road from you or they move in the apartment next to you, what is the one thing that's required for them to do that? Is that they left another house, they left another road, they left another apartment. For Mary Brenner Clark to leave her 11-bedroom home in Laguna Beach, her summer house overlooking the ocean, or her Beverly Hills home, for her to, to get into La Mesa prison required her to let go of that. For Jesus to dwell in our neighborhood means he left something And for us to engage in any sort of real spirituality, it's that same journey of letting go. Because all spirituality is about letting go. And one of the things that we find when we learn to let go is that's ultimately what what we are intended to be in the first place. All along, that's how we are wired to live. I introduced you to Viktor Frankl two weeks ago. Some of you knew him already, but he was a prominent psychotherapist in the time leading up to the Holocaust. As a very young man, he developed a relationship with uh, Sigmund Freud, one of the most famous psychologists of all time. He had journal articles published when he was just a boy. And so when the Holocaust was beginning, he had a visa to leave because as a Jewish man, he knew where he was headed. But he had parents. And as someone who worked with suicide prevention, he had this heart that he didn't really want to leave his parents. He didn't know what to do. He had a visa in his hand, but he didn't have it in his heart to leave. And so he goes to St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, and he's praying for this like word from God of telling him, what are you supposed to do? Do you stay with your parents and experience one of the most awful things that's ever happened in all humanity? Or do you go? And he didn't get it at St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna. And so he goes home, and his father returns with a piece of rubble. It was a piece of marble from a synagogue that the Nazis had destroyed. And that piece of marble happened to have a little inscription on it. You want to guess what it said? It was one of the Ten Commandments. It was the one that said, Honor your father and mother. And he saw that, and he said, That was my word from God. And so he stays, experiences the Holocaust. He loses his parents and a pregnant wife. And afterwards, he writes a very prominent book called Man's Search for Meaning in Nine Days. Nine Days. And there's this great line in there about meaning uh, that I want to read to you right now. He writes this. He says, Being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself. Be it a meaning to fulfill or another human being to encounter. The more one forgets himself by giving himself to a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human he is. One of the core tenets of Christianity is the belief that God is Jesus. And the belief that there is a person named Jesus of Nazareth who is fully human. And to believe that Jesus is fully human is to believe that everything that humanity was intended to be was fulfilled in Jesus. 
So if you want to know what a perfect person is supposed to look like, if you want to know what the ideal picture of humanity is, you look at this person. And when you look at the person of Jesus, you see someone who embodies this concept that ultimately it's not about receiving, but it's more blessed to give. If you want to see someone who talks about how you can give away and how you should lose your life, you look at Jesus because he didn't just say those words. He embodied his entire life was leaving and letting go to be here. And that's the heart of what it means to have meaning. There's been research that's been done trying to uh, study the difference between a happy life and a meaningful life and to see if there is some, some overlapping between a meaningful life and a happy life. And they find there is some similarity, but ultimately there is a, a difference at the core of a happy life and a meaningful life. Because a happy life at its core is about being a taker. We've defined this before, that happiness ultimately is about drive reduction. If you want to acquire something, if you want to get somewhere, if you want to have something, happiness is the byproduct of having those drives reduced when you acquire it. That's what a happy life is. You always acquire the things that you have a drive for. But a meaningful life is defined ultimately as giving yourself away. That's the problem with having a shallow life is it's always about taking and it's never about doing something meaningful, which ultimately is found in giving. You think of things that are most meaningful. If you were to ask your parents, what is the meaningful thing you've done? You would hope they would say being your parent, right? Uh, I had a professor friend whose sons are, are ministers and work um, churches in Texas. And they talked about at his funeral how their dad always said, one of the best things I've ever done, the best thing I've ever done was being your father. That's the kind of thing you want to hear. But you hear a parent talk about the most meaningful thing I've done is being a parent. And let me ask you, is the, being a parent always a happy thing? There are plenty of drives that never get reduced when you're a parent. Sleep, free time, money, those things are never reduced. But it's meaningful because ultimately it's about giving yourself away. When you're serving someone, it means that you are not receiving, but somehow serving is more meaningful than receiving. And so when we talk about Christmas and the story of Christmas, it's very easy to think Christmas is just something to watch and observe and to celebrate. And all those things are good and fine, but we forget that ultimately Christmas is an invitation to live this life out. Because Christmas is an invitation to also live in a way in which you give yourself away so you can say this one phrase, you're welcome. Because that's ultimately what we were meant to do anyway. Uh, after World War II, Japan faced uh, a crisis with the re-entrance of their young men back into their normal society. The problem was they had these young men who had spent the majority of their life learning to be a soldier. But they didn't need to be a soldier anymore. And society didn't need them to be soldiers anymore. And so they decided they were going to create this massive ritual in which they were going to publicly and profusely praise these men for what they did for their country. And in these ceremonies, they had an elder get up and say, the war is over. Thank you for what you've done. 
and it has served you and our country well, but you need to let go of it. And we need to receive you now as men, as citizens, and something beyond being a soldier. At some point in our ritually starved society, we need to have something demarking the time that says you were in your first half of life and it was about receiving. And we gathered around and we celebrated you for opening your presence and you were filling the you were creating the container. But eventually you need to move into the second phase of life and realize that it's not being a consumer. It's not being a taker. It's not being a receiver, but you have to become a giver. And that's what you were created to do. Because maturity is always evolving into that. Uh, a few years ago, Warren Buffett decided he was going to give away 99% of his wealth. 99% of his wealth. And before you think that we need to create a bake sale to take care of him, he was worth $65 billion at the time. So according to my math, that's still a lot of money that he's got left. And he was interviewed in Money Magazine talking about this decision. And he said some really interesting stuff. He said, I, I think about what I lucked into and my family lucked into as the, the ovarian lottery. He says, in the 1930s, I had a one in 30 chance to be born in America. And then on top of that, I was born as a man and as a white person, which opened even more opportunities for me. And then I was born into a marketplace that had differing results for what you did. If you rescued someone on a battlefield, you're rewarded with a medal. If you were a teacher and you taught someone, you were rewarded with a thank you note. But if you were able to notice discrepancies in misprices on securities, you were rewarded with billions of dollars. I don't know how fair that is. But then he has this great line. He says this. He says, Fate, fate's dis, dis, uh, dissemination of the long straw is whimsically capricious. Now, if you're a billionaire, you can use phrases like that. But if you're not, his point is the way that fate gives out the long straw, the person who gets the best break, it's random. It's not always fair. It doesn't make sense. Why does the teacher get a note and the, the security traders get billions of dollars? It doesn't make sense. But then he says, instead of responding with guilt, we responded with gratitude. And if you listen to kind of the arc of what he's saying, it's the entire series that we're trying to communicate wrapped up into one story. At the beginning, it says we needed help. I had that one in 30 odds and I lucked out. And so I say, thank you. Because it's not fair. And then eventually I can say that's enough. I don't need more than what I have. It's easy to say when you're still worth $600, $650 million. We'll just have to carry the one a few times over for us. But the only response that makes sense is then to say you're welcome and to give it away. And when you learn the story of Christmas, you learn you have to say thank you. That's enough. I've been helped. But it ends by you saying you're welcome in giving. I, I learned something that today is the longest day 
in the southern hemisphere and the shortest day in the northern hemisphere, which is very interesting. And there has to be some point in there because that's, that's too good of an illustration. And I wonder if it's this. It's the very same day someone can see a whole lot in the very same, and the very next person in the very same day can see so little. The very same day there can be so much for some people and so little for others. And that happens when you're not aware. And you might not be aware of what you have to say thank you for. And you might not be aware of what you have to say that's enough for. And you might not have the awareness to realize that you have the opportunity to give and to say you're welcome. But the person right next to you might be able to. And the person with the awareness is going to be the one who really is able to have a Merry Christmas. Because we are always created to be givers, just like God gave of himself in Jesus. What we're going to do now to continue celebrating Christmas is make our way to these tables and to celebrate communion. If you've never been here before, the way it works is you go around these tables and someone will administer the bread and then the cup to you. And the reason we do this is, one, we are not doing this alone because the journey of being a follower of Jesus and participating in this story is not something you do by yourself, but it's something we do as a community. And two, the good news in the gospel isn't just something we hear, but it's something we taste and participate in. And we participate in it by taking this meal. So let's pray and then we'll make our way. God, we thank you for what we celebrate at Christmas. We thank you that you journeyed into our world and into our neighborhood and onto our street and moved in with us. And help us to remember that we are not alone in this world because Christ became a baby and was born as a humble, poor child with the world out to get him. And help us to remember that is good news for us and then help us learn to live into the story of Christmas and learn to give ourselves away just as you gave yourself in Jesus. And as we gather around these tables, let us remember the good news that the body was broken and the blood was shed. Christ in Christ's name. Amen.